0: The nationwide opioid epidemic was tied to about 50,000 deaths in 2017. The devastation of opioid addiction is acknowledged, almost uncontested. President Trump focused on the crisis in a weekly address last April. Opioid abuse and addiction can impact anyone, and everyone knows someone who's been impacted. That's why we call it The Crisis Next Door. More than 1,500 lawsuits have been filed against manufacturers and distributors of opioids by state attorneys general, cities, counties, hospitals, other groups and individuals. A judge in Cleveland, Ohio, is handling what's called a multi-district litigation, which has become incredibly complicated, raising a number of novel legal questions. Healthcare attorney Harry Nelson joins me now. He's written a new book entitled The United States of Opioids: A Prescription for Liberating a Nation in Pain. Harry, how much is big pharma responsible for the opioid crisis?
1: Big pharma certainly was a culprit here. What I like to say is that they probably were the equivalent to the spark that lit the fire, but at the same time, there were multiple points of system failure that drove this crisis. So, Certainly Big Pharma deserves to pay a price for having been so irresponsible and so aggressive in marketing these drugs, even as people were dying at horrific rates. But at the same time, the reason that it happened was in the backdrop was a whole set of failures in our uh, training of physicians, in our government regulation, in our health insurance system. And we have to look at those also as responsible pieces of the puzzle. So other than big pharma, the other healthcare actors who have come in for a lot of criticism have been physicians. A lot of people have said physicians just were blindly over prescribing, that we had pill mills all over the country. And there were certainly physicians, examples of physicians who were sloppy in their prescribing practices. But more broadly, there's been a failure on the part of our medical training system and our health system to really ensure that physicians are trained on treating pain and addiction. It's really a problem that goes back to the early 20th century when uh, when the government first began to crack down on opium and heroin use. Uh, we basically trained a whole generation of physicians not to treat pain. It was a, a massive crackdown because so many people were becoming addicted. And then it, it took about 70 years, but we forgot that, and the pendulum swung back to you know, worrying about pain surveys and making sure the patients weren't in pain, and now it's swung back again. So I think that we should look at the issues around physicians really as, in large part, a structural issue around training and then also an issue about how insurance companies drive decisions. Insurance companies and the pressure for low-cost care has translated to pills, right? There are lots of solutions. We have a pain crisis in this country, 50 million Americans complaining about pain, uh, but the answer that the insurance industry wants is to give people pills, not to talk about physical therapy and chiropractic and a whole laundry list of personal services that take professionals and time and cost more than just handing somebody a pill. And finally, I think that we need to look at the role of government, right? It was the government that started calling pain the fifth vital sign. It was the Joint Commission, which is responsible for Medicare accreditation, which really pushed this idea that we needed to respond to patients' pain, which is absolutely a legitimate idea, but the problem is that when we survey patients in hospitals and ask, you know, how bad is your pain, people, a positivity bias causes most people to, to say eights and nines, and that, that was part of the problem. And more broadly, you know, the DEA uh, has been an obstacle to research on alternatives. The DEA was asleep at the wheel, as fentanyl flooded into the country, uh, as physicians stopped prescribing. And uh, we've seen the FDA utterly fail to police marketing by pharma. So there's lots of points of blame to go around our health system and places where we need to fix things to put an end to the causes of this crisis.
0: You put the DEA at the top of the list of government agencies that failed the country in the opioid crisis. Why at the top?
1: Well, I, for me, the, there's three pieces to the DEA that uh, I just think should be troubling to most people. Number one was, as I said, you know, the, the DEA starts off as a, a very aggressive force of cracking down on physicians. And it's not clear to me why, you know, we have as a country made a decision, and this was Supreme, a Supreme Court decision, that uh, medical practice and prescribing is really an oversight issue for the states to decide when what a doctor needs to do to prescribe appropriately. But the DEA stepped in very aggressively and, frankly, terrorized physicians, and it's the insertion of the DEA into the oversight of medicine has left many, many doctors afraid to prescribe and really created a crisis for people in chronic pain. Number two, when the response to the uh, crackdown on physicians by the DEA was with black tar heroin and fentanyl flooding into the country, uh, the DEA was it was mind-boggling, but somehow it took them about three years to recognize that China and Mexico were, were just importing massive amounts of low-cost fentanyl that was killing people. If we're looking for the DEA to do anything, it should have been to police our borders and to stop, stop this stuff from coming in. But it literally was the fentanyl started coming in in 2013 and it literally was not until 2016 and 2017 that the DEA even began to think about how to stop it. As recently as last year, you could do a search on buy fentanyl and find websites from China advertising on Google and freely mailing in packets of fentanyl. And finally, and this is my third point that I think we really need to reexamine what the DEA is doing, is that the DEA has been obstructing research on alternative pain therapeutics. So, when you look at what ha- what's happening around cannabis and other alternative therapies, uh, the DEA has been absolutely obstructive. I'm contacted constantly by universities that have researchers who want to research alternative pain therapeutics like cannabis, and they are blocked because they're federally funded. If you want an example, a very recent example of how how difficult the DEA has been, there were repeated efforts by the hemp uh, industry to say, look, we have a non-cannabis source of CBD and other therapeutics that potentially could solve the pain problem. And the DEA absolutely refused to bend uh, and fought vigorously. And it took Congress passing a new farm bill last month to change the status of CBD and to say to the DEA, we're rescheduling. So the DEA, from my perspective, has been at multiple points of this crisis, you know, dragging its feet and trying to do uh, everything it can to pursue an agenda that's not in line with fixing the opioid crisis
0: let's turn to the law now how has the opioid crisis shaped american law
1: i think you can draw a straight line from the staggering rise in overdose deaths in the late 1990s which really drew an unprecedented level of attention to the fact that something like 20 million americans are living with various substance use disorders. You can draw a straight line between the opioid crisis and the decision in 2008 to pass uh, mental health parity, which President Bush, George W. Bush signed into law, which was the first time that we said, We're not going to allow health insurance to discriminate between medical, surgical care and substance use disorder and other mental health care. And likewise, when you look at what the Obama administration and Congress put together in crafting the Affordable Care Act, it's unmistakable that the opioid crisis was in people's thoughts in making the decision to include substance use disorder treatment for the very first time as one of the 10 essential health benefits. Even when you look at the fight to dismantle the Affordable Care Act in 2017 and the Trump administration's efforts to repeal, what we saw was that Republican senators flipped over and voted to block the rollback of the Medicaid program through the Affordable Care Act specifically because of the importance, the critical importance of getting more access to care for people across the country through the Medicaid program to deal with the opioid crisis. So there's been a whole series of changes in how we approach addiction and basically bringing addiction treatment into the fold of healthcare, uh, which it wasn't 20 years ago. And I think that's directly attributable to the opioid crisis. There's there's lots of other smaller examples, but that's the big one.
0: At the beginning, I mentioned the multi-district litigation. Which side has the advantage in those lawsuits, the plaintiffs or Big Pharma?
1: As we saw with big tobacco uh, litigation not too long ago and the uh, NFL, the concussion litigation, when you have these mass tort class actions that hit on core societal issues, Big Pharma has a problem. For many, many years, companies like Purdue Pharma were successful at settling cases and avoiding discovery, right? Avoiding depositions of drug company executives and doctors and calling attention to it. But the bottom line is this case is a ticking time bomb for big pharma. And it's almost in inevitability that this case will have to be settled, we're right now kind of in the early stages of discovery in the multi-district litigation where there are tens of millions of documents filtering in through these you know, digital rooms, which are going to take a long time to go through. And it's likely that we're going to have a, some depositions probably in another year before we're on the horizon for a settlement. But I think it's inevitable that uh, Big Pharma will have no choice but to But to settle this case, there's no possible way. We would literally see uh, one pharmaceutical company after another go out of business. It's hard to imagine how they could find a jury, uh, that there could be a jury in the United States that would not be uh, inclined to find them responsible.
0: Thanks for being on Bloomberg Law, Harry. That's Harry Nelson. His new book is called The United States of Opioids, A Prescription for Liberating a Nation in Pain. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.